So if you look at the top of your notes, there are three gospel statements that we're going to begin with. First is you never outgrow the gospel, you grow into the gospel. Second, the gospel is not just the good news that saves, it is the good news that sanctifies. And number three, the gospel is not only what we need to be saved, the gospel is what we need to live as saved people. Now, if you have been a part of Sherwood over the last couple of years, chances are you have heard me mention all three of those statements multiple times. I consider that to be me keeping my promise to you. And here's what I mean. On June the 20th, 2021, I stood in this exact place to preach a trial message. And I told you at that time, if you called me to be your pastor, I've got one message that is repackaged in a thousand different ways. And it's the message of the gospel. And it is not that I only address one topic. It is the idea that every topic we address finds its fullness, its depth of understanding, and its basis of application in the gospel message itself. So let's pull that idea out just a little bit more. Our understanding of concepts like forgiveness and reconciliation are shaped by the gospel because as believers, we have been forgiven and we have been reconciled by God. You and I could not fully talk about concepts like heaven and hell, sinners and sainthood, saved and lost without mentioning the gospel. It's the gospel message, the call of God that is the dividing point between each of those. Without the gospel, it is impossible to embrace a full life of faith, intimacy with God, our created being, or for that matter, even God's love for us. In fact, the gospel message itself is so important. Without it, we are going to miss the beauty of things like election or the fullness of God's glory, the reason we can have true joy, the path to genuine freedom, the entryway into the kingdom of God, and so much more. Each of those concepts are rooted in a gospel understanding. Now, I want you to hold that thought and let's bridge it into what the church is facing in 2023. The church of Jesus Christ, universal, in 2023 is facing some challenges. That is not a surprise or secret to any of us. But here's the point that I want to try to bring out. One of the biggest challenges that the church is facing in 2023 is professing Christians who are gospel deficient. There are tens of millions of people who are showing up at churches on a semi-regular basis. They're claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, and yet they struggle to be able to define, much less describe, the basics of the gospel. There's people who are claiming to be followers of Christ, and yet they live in fear of sharing the good news with somebody else. There are people who are followers of Jesus. They, they've been in the church for a long time, and yet they're still struggling to frame out life from a gospel perspective. I do not want that to be the case for Sherwood. I want it to be that our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids are gonna understand and be able to live the gospel at an early age. 
I, I pray that as a group, we are not nibbling on the stale crumbs of religion and self-effort when God has called us to feast at the table of gospel truth and freedom. My, my prayer is that as a group, we are so gospel-centered, so gospel-focused that the moment a conversation comes up, we're instantly making connections back to how does this connect back to the gospel itself. So if you are brand new, walking into Sherwood for the first time this morning, it's a great time for you to be here. If you've been here for 50 years, it's still a great time for you to be here. I'm going to give you all a gospel crash course in about one and a half to two minutes. And, and here's the thing. If you understand what I'm about to share, if you have the ability to share with others what I'm about to tell you, you will be worlds ahead of the vast number of Christians who are in churches today. So, so here's your quick overview of the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Bam! Answer number one right there for you. Okay, here's the thing. If you're talking gospel and the conversation doesn't move towards good news, you've missed the gospel. Now, what is it the good news about? It's the good news of God's design, sin's intrusion, and Christ's solution for human flourishing. That one statement alone packages the redemptive story of God throughout the Bible. It speaks of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, all in one sentence. How does the gospel impact me? The gospel helps us understand that humanity was created for relationship with God. Our sins separated us from that relationship. There was nothing any of us could ever do to make things right ourselves. But Jesus did for us what we could not do. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead three days later that we might have life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. That is the story of the gospel. Now let's say somebody has placed faith in the gospel message. How does the gospel still impact their life after that? How does the gospel impact life today? It's through the gospel that helps us understand our purpose for life, our identity, helps us to understand the way God sees us. It gives direction, it gives peace, it gives meaning. In fact, the gospel enables us to do things we could never do. Like, for example, forgive people who have hurt us deeply. We all need that. The gospel enables us to love people, not just in our words, but also through our actions. Our world needs that. The gospel brings hope in the midst of depth, our death. It, it, it shows the secret of joy in the, the process of disappointment, it enables us to experience an intimate, growing, vibrant relationship with the God who created us. And that's just a little bit of what the gospel does every single day. The gospel changes everything. It changes our eternal destination, and it also changes our current situation. So here's my question. What does it look like for the gospel to transform ordinary day-to-day -day lives? Not like 
Sunday in a, in a high moment, like the choir's singing and you got like tingles and goosebumps. You're like, this is glorious. Okay, that's wonderful. But how does the gospel transform the way you walk into that business meeting this next week? Has it changed the way you talk to your spouse? How does it change the way you engage your community? How does it change the way you pay your bills at the end of the month? If the gospel is not just the good news that saves, but the good news that sanctifies, the gospel has impact on every single part of life. That's what we're getting into in this series. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles today to the book of John, chapter number one. Book of John, chapter number one, we're gonna be in verses 19 through 23. We are beginning this study of gospel living and we're gonna focus on identity. Oh my goodness, if you read the headlines, if you see what's happening on college campuses and high schools and middle schools, there is so much struggle in our culture on identity. Either people trying to define someone in a way that God did not define them, or the person wrestling with the questions of who am I? The gospel answers those questions. So this morning I'm speaking on the gospel and identity. John's gospel chapter number one, We'll begin in verse number 19. It says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet said. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, would you guide us into truth? God, for those wrestling with identity right now, Lord God, may your word become unbelievably clear. For those who don't even think the issue of identity is a real issue in their life, Lord, if it is, I pray that you would bring it to the surface. Lord, may we walk in a full understanding of how the gospel shapes our identity. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a world of labels. We label everyone, we label everything. We shop by labels. We determine value by labels. We judge people based on labels. We have certain terms that we use when describing people, terms like smart, rich, weak, ugly, tall, repulsive, hardworking, lazy, handsome, conservative, liberal, and a whole list could go on from there. We label everyone and everything. And if we don't know how to label someone, we make it up on the spot. In the immortal words of the great theologian, Medea. <laughs> it ain't what they call you, it's what you answer to. <laughs> we answer to what we believe to be true about ourselves. So think about the power of labels for just a moment. Labels can be innocent, they can be descriptive. For example, you might say, that's a tall, well-dressed man. And by saying that, it's 
no ill intent that is involved. It's just a descriptive observation. Also, labels can be insightful and they can be inspiring. If you tell someone you're smart or you've got a gift in music, or if you tell someone, I enjoy being with you, like you're a great person to hang out with, you, by your words, can begin to breathe life into that person. For somebody who didn't even know they had a gift in music, it might inspire them to pursue music. It, there's something that is inspiring and encouraging about words being used well. But at the same time, labels can be hurtful and demoralizing. If a parent tells a child, you're worthless, if teenagers speak of a classmate and they say they're stupid or they'll never amount to anything, those words can begin to sink down into that person's heart in a way that it begins to shape the way they view themselves. It shapes their own identity. At every turn, in every direction, from people you know and from people you don't know, from Satan who is in the shadows to God who is reigning on high, labels are being placed on you. So listen again to these words. It ain't what they call you, it's what you answer to. We answer to what we believe to be true about ourselves. So here's our challenge. We have to, as believers, we have to answer to truth from God's perspective. Okay, let me, let, me, let me emphasize from God's perspective. This is important because there are things that are true about your past, but those things do not define you today according to God's perspective. There are things you might struggle with today in your present day situation, but our current condition is not the same as our eternal position. We have to see ourselves through the truth of God's perspective. Part of renewing our mind as followers of Jesus Christ is learning to see ourselves as God sees us through the lens of the gospel. So the gospel is this message that not only divides, divides between lost and saved, sheep and goats, those who are followers of Christ and those who are not. It not only is the dividing line, it also defines people. It defines people as either being in Adam as their federal head or being in Christ. This is where this gospel conversation about identity is so important. All of this determines identity. So here is our big concept for this morning. You have to know who you are to know who you aren't. God defines our identity. Okay, so let's see this truth come out of this text. The questions that the priest and the Levites brought before John the Baptist, it's a part of a much bigger narrative. They didn't randomly just stumble upon a guy by the name of John and all of a sudden were suddenly overcome with curiosity about his name and his identity. Instead, John was a guy who was drawing large crowds. He was creating a buzz. In fact, John was one of those few people who was a legend in his own time. In fact, you can see it in the fact that he's one of the most popular people mentioned in the Bible. He is mentioned 89 times in the New Testament. John was miraculously born to aging parents. John and Jesus were relatives through their moms. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He's the first prophet of the New Testament. He's a guy who ate locusts and wild honey, and he wore a snazzy outfit made out of camel's hair. He, he preached a bold message of repentance without concern for who was in the audience. 
He was incredibly popular with people. He did some prison time for standing up against the ruling party that gave him street cred. He baptized Jesus. Stop. He baptized Jesus. Could you imagine being in ministry as a pastor, handing out your resume, saying you might recognize me from down at the Jordan River? <laughs> I baptized the Son of God. I mean, could you imagine the honor? Oh, and by the way, Jesus himself said, called him the greatest man who had ever lived to this point. Legend. So John the Baptist wasn't some unknown guy living in obscurity. He was a guy people were talking about. They're trying to figure him out. Who is he? What's his message? What does he stand for? So this group of priests and Levites, they're sent in order to gain some intel. Their first question, who are you? It's an identity question. John's response is in verse 20. I am not the Christ. From the very beginning, he's like, let me go ahead and take this off the table. I am not Messiah. I am not the one who's been promised through the Old Testament. Their second question, are you Elijah? Found in verse 21. Now let's stop right there. Uh, just for everybody's information, they are just not randomly pulling names out of the air. They're not just saying, are you Jeremiah? How about Daniel? David, maybe David, huh? Like, we're, like they're just not randomly pulling out names but rather each of the names that are being mentioned are names that were prophesied to come back around the time of Messiah, and he's fitting a lot of the prophecies that describe them. For example, based on Malachi 3.1 and 4.5, the Jewish people expected Elijah to come back just before Messiah returned to establish his earthly kingdom. So John's message of repentance and coming judgment, it sounded very much like Elijah. Uh, his clothing choice of camel hair, kind of with a leather belt, it was very Elijah-esque. His bold proclamations, him being a prophet, it all reminded them of Elijah. So the people who were sent, they're probably thinking to themselves, we've been waiting for Elijah. This guy looks like Elijah. This guy talks like Elijah. This guy acts like Elijah. Maybe it's Elijah. In fact, to the point that even today, many Jewish people still have a seat open at the Seder meal, and it's called the seat of Elijah, still waiting for Elijah to return. So John answered with three words, I am not. Now, while Elijah, he was not Elijah in a literal sense, he was Elijah-like. In fact, Jesus helps us understand that. Just write the reference off to the side, Matthew 17, 10 through 13. Matthew 17, 10 through 13. When Jesus was talking about the prophecies that Elijah would come, he told his disciples, Elijah already came and they did not recognize him. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So there's the connection piece back with Old Testament prophecy. The Jewish people were expecting Elijah to return in bodily form, but according to Luke chapter 1, verse 17, John the Baptist came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. So now their next question is, are you the prophet? Now again, this is another one of those prophecies. In fact, this came out of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses prophesied that there would be another one who would come who would speak the word of God and would be similar to him. 
Now, there was a lot of, I guess, question about who this person would be. Some people thought that this would be another forerunner, just like John the Baptist. Others thought it would be Jeremiah or one of the other prophets who had been resurrected by God. And still others thought it was a reference to Messiah himself. Well, as it turns out, the later view seems to be the correct view. Both Peter in Acts chapter 3 as well as Stephen in Acts chapter 9 applied Deuteronomy 18 to Jesus. Now, again, John the Baptist's response was very quick. He said, no. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but he's not one for idle chit-chat. His reply started with five words, then three words, then one word. I am not the Christ. I am not. No. So the delegation's now getting a little bit frustrated, and they're like, well, if you're not going to tell us, then you define yourself. So this is huge. When they asked him to define who he was, instead of claiming to be someone important, instead of drawing attention to himself, he humbly refers to himself as a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. When an Eastern king was set to arrive, a delegation was sent before the king to remove barriers, to level the road, and to smooth out impediments. They were said to be making the way straight. They were preparing the way. See, here's in essence what John the Baptist said. There's a king who's coming. I'm just a part of the road crew getting ready for him. John's not trying to be someone he's not. He's not trying to draw attention to himself. He is a voice. Now, there's so much that you could unpack in this one area, the symbolism in this. That is, Jesus is the word. John is a voice. Jesus is the way. John is preparing the way for the way. And you could keep going down through that whole list. So John's answer about his identity shifts the focus away from him and onto Christ. And that is the exact pattern you see with John the Baptist throughout his ministry. When he saw Jesus next to the Jordan River, his disciples were with him. His statement was, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his disciples leave him to follow after Jesus. Also, when he was describing the role that he had in relation to Christ, John the Baptist made this statement, he must increase, but I must decrease. He's constantly taking the focus away from himself and putting it back on Christ. And this delegation, they're desperate to now figure out who he is. They're still a little bit confused because in that time, they had seen many great people come and go, and those great people definitely made a name for themselves. So they feared leaders like Alexander the Great. They benefited from lawgivers like Hammurabi. They were captivated by thinkers like Socrates, astounded by the wisdom of Solomon, the faith of Abraham, the leadership of Moses. They know they're standing in the presence of greatness, but he wouldn't define himself in a way that they could understand. And the way he's describing himself did not match the way other great people represented themselves. He didn't put the spotlight on himself. He didn't clamor for a seat of power or influence. He wasn't flaunting wealth. In fact, his outfits and his diet 
would identify him with the poor based on Matthew chapter three, verse four. And remember what Jesus had to say about him. He was the greatest man who had ever lived. If anyone in this moment could say, I'm all that, it was John the Baptist. If anybody could say, I'm a big deal, look at me, here's my resume, Here, here's who I am, it would have been John the Baptist. But instead of doing that, he simply says, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Take that back to our big concept. You have to know who you are to know who you aren't. God defines our identity. John knew who he was, and he also knew who he wasn't. There is incredible freedom in knowing who you are, in being who you are, and not letting someone else try to define you. John knew the truth about himself. Here it is again. Here's the statement. It ain't what they call you. It's what you answer to. He did not allow them to define him. When they said, are you Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? He, he, did not, he did not go along that path. He very quickly shut that down. His statements were, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. I am a voice of one. I am not, I am not, I am not, I am. You have to know who you are to know who you aren't. And if you don't know who you are, others will try to define you. This is so important. This is in your notes. Our identity is not determined by our physical attributes. John the Baptist was living in the desert with a camel skin outfit and a mouthful of locusts. If you don't think people were trying to define him based on physical attributes, you are kidding yourself. In fact, this delegation of priests and Levites, they're trying to define him and connect him back to people like Elijah. Here's the thing. We have to know who we are to know who we aren't. Our identity is not determined by our current status. When John identified himself as a voice of one crying in the wilderness, that was not his current gig. In other words, it was not that this week he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Next week, he's gonna be a, a welcomer down at Walmart. Um, if that doesn't work out next year, there's going to be a position maybe as a lifeguard at the Jordan River. Like he's not defining himself by a current gig. Instead, he is declaring what God had declared about him. Did you notice it in verse 23? It says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, he was who God said he was through the prophet Isaiah. This is important. If you take your identity from what you're currently doing, you will feel lost or incomplete if you are no longer doing it. That is true of people with their careers. It is true of parents when you're bringing up small children and you're the primary caregiver. It is true of relationship status, true of bank accounts, physical ability. It's, it's true of the number of followers you have on social media. If you define yourself by what's happening in your current status right now, if any part of that status changes, you feel lost and you feel incomplete. Your job is what you do. It's not who you are. Your wealth is what you have. It is not who you are. 
Your ability is a gift you possess. It is not who you are. Your popularity is how people see you. It is not who you are. God is the one who defines us. Here's the next one. Our identity is not determined by our past mistakes. The past may shape how you see the world. The past can help you wisely navigate the future. The past can even enable you to understand God's grace and his mercy in the present, but it is not who you are. Your past can be a great teacher, but it is a poor master. Next one, our identity is not determined by our self-assessment. I have found that I am often my harshest critic as well as my greatest fan, sometimes within the same day. <laughs> Depending on the day, I see nothing but flaws or I see no flaws at all. In self-assessment, I could fool myself through unmitigated pride or I could hate myself through unrelenting criticism. And neither one is true and accurate. Here's the next one. Our identity is defined by God. God is the one who tells us who we are. God is the one who creates this identity. You have to know who you are to know who you aren't. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have been transformed by the gospel, the scripture is so clear as to what our identity is. I'm not going to read through all of it, but I did put it all there for you so that you could study these pieces. Uh, scripture says, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're a child of God. You're a member of Christ's body. You are a new creation. You're an heir with God. You're a saint. You're a saint. You're a saint. You're like, I don't feel like a saint. Doesn't matter how you feel because it's not about your self-assessment. God declared if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been transformed by the gospel, you are a saint. That is how he sees you at this point. According to scripture, we are God's workmanship. We have been chosen by God, chosen by God. I know people get scared about words like election and predestination, but when you understand you have been chosen by God, you will never doubt your worth and value again. You're like, somebody else might not like me. It doesn't matter. God chose you. He chose you. Do you see the value that instantly comes when we understand our identity in Christ? So let me say it again. It ain't what they call you. It's what you answer to. You have to know who you are to know who you aren't. God defines our identity. Identity matters. There is something incredibly calming about being able to finish this statement. I am, and finish it according to how God sees you. There's calmness in that, serenity in that. I, I wanna say it again because this is the place where people get so confused. Our identity is not what we do, that's our profession. Our identity is not what we've done. That's our past. Our identity is not what we enjoy. That's our preferences. Our identity is what God declares it to be through the gospel. A major part of gospel living 
a major part of the gospel impacting your everyday life is beginning to see yourself as God sees you. When you start to go through this list, here's here's my challenge if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. When you start to go through this list, ask God to identify the areas where the enemy is attacking you with lies. Ask him to help you see where the enemy is trying to get you away from your identity in Christ in order to help you, I guess, get distracted, to get you off course. You have to know who you are to know who you aren't. When you go through this list, ask God, where's the enemy trying to attack? Where are the lies coming from? Here's my second question I want you to ask. Ask God, what are the hardest pieces on this list for me to believe about myself? Depending upon your journey, there'll be certain parts of this that are gonna be harder than others. I'll tell you, one of the parts for me that's so hard to get my mind around is when scripture says you're a saint. I'm about to make some people really unhappy. There's a song that has been sung for years within the church. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. My friends, that is bad theology. You were a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint who he is sanctifying every day. When you see scripture the way God defines you, It'll challenge the songs you sing. It'll challenge the way you view yourself because so many times we see our own flaws more than what we would want to. We're like, I I know what I've done, and the Bible still says you're a saint. I'm like, I don't feel like a saint. It doesn't matter. That's how he sees you, through the blood of Christ. But when people start to live the way God sees them, there is a confidence that they have that is not pride. There's a confidence from knowing who they are in Christ. There's a confidence in saying, I can do what God's called me to do because it's about him living his life through me. It's no longer about my past. That's in the past. That was forgiven. He saw all of that prior to saving me, and he still called me to be his child anyway. There is freedom that comes in knowing what our identity is. So I don't know where you might be this morning. It might be today that some of you have been struggling with identity for a while. It might be that you're at a a crossroads in your life, maybe where your identity was defined by something else in the past, but now things have changed. You're at a new part of the journey and and you're, you're wrestling with who I am today. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Take your identity from who you are in Christ as defined by the gospel. There might be other people in the room right now that you would say, honestly, I- I'm here, I'm interested, but I-, I don't know anything that you're talking about with this gospel. This is my first time in church in a long time. I came because somebody invited me. But man, I, I need help. I'm asking God to-, to change my life. I just don't even know where to start. If that's you, I want to let you know there is good 
news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is God knew you were going to be here today. And he has beautifully said, I got a message for you. The message is you've been created for a purpose. Sin has separated you from God. You can't do it yourself, but Jesus has done what you cannot. And he will save you if you will turn from your sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to bow with me for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. Our band is going to start making their way forward. Some of our pastors and pastor's wives will be at the front. Some of our counselors will also be at the front. Our desire today is simply to help, help people, help people take that next step. It might be that you're a follower of Christ, but you have wrestled with identity for years. And you just need somebody to pray with you. It might be that today your, your first step is saying, would you pray with me? Or is there somebody I can talk to after this service? It might be that you're here today and you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. But there is something about what we've described that is, is compelling. It's calling. It, it's, it's like it's something that you know you need, but you don't know what the next step needs to be. If that's you... Step out in just a moment. There's one of these pastors or pastor's wives who would love to be able to talk with you. I don't know where you're at in your journey, but God does. Would you simply respond to him? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask, Lord, today that you would allow people to take the next step, whether that is a next step into relationship or if that is a next step into understanding of identity in Christ. Lord God, I pray that you would give us unbelievable clarity about areas where the enemy is using lies to hold us back from the fullness of what we can experience in Christ. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.